Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. In part two, we continue our conversation with Kevin M. Gannon, author of Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto, published by the University of West Virginia Press in 2020. Kevin is going to tell us about the ethic of hope in these bleak pandemic times and how online teaching can provide a way for students to be in charge of their education. I'm really glad you brought up the the topic of surveillance in these management um, platforms. I think one of the one of the conversations that again brings us back to this point about the intersection between organizing and pedagogy is the fear among lots of lots of educators that the platforms that we, that our institutions are subscribing to that perhaps our students and we are most familiar with are those that not only are um, involved in collecting data on, um, on the, the users who navigate them, but also that, um, that that data is creating capital for giant corporations like Facebook, um, Amazon, Etc. And I know you, you've done some writing about the difference between um, online education that is like privatized scam online education for profit and online education that um, is serious and deep and that can create these spaces for community. I wonder. Um, oh, so the other thing I'll say about that is that I think it can be tricky sometimes because the the platforms that are doing this data mining surveillance for profit stuff are often talking in the same terms about, oh, we want to give options. We want agency, open borders. Um, we, we're creating a global family of connection. And so I wonder if you could comment on how you find the distinction between those modes and like what are your, like, what are your absolute deal breakers in terms of thinking about a platform or um, designing a course and how do people know um, when they're falling into patterns that might actually be serving um, institutions that want to privatize higher education and casualize it, for example? Yeah, those are great questions and, and central ones, uh, essential ones. Um, you know, makes me think of in the open educational resources, the OER community, um, there's a phrase that they use called open washing, where it's these big, uh, you know, like greenwashing or whitewashing, right, where the big textbook publishers are adapting the language of open education and open educational resources. Uh, but it's very commodified and it's not it's not free, it's not reusable, it's not all the things that make an OER an OER, but they're using the same sorts of terms. You know, so the, they use these you know, digital platforms that are they call inclusive access, which basically means it's all included, your textbook, your homework, all this kind of stuff. But the language of inclusion is, you know, that choice has been made for a specific reason, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be very watchful very mindful of the tools that we're using and what we're asking or how we are asking students to engage with the tools and do students have the option if they choose not to engage with the tools um, in terms of, you know, what are their data privacy 
you know, policies and things like that. It is always worth having the discussion in any online course, no matter the discipline, about digital presence and data and privacy and ethics. Because if you're in a digital environment, whether it's a Google search or anything else, you need to be thinking about these things. Um, for me, the deal breaker is anything that commoditizes students or treats students as something to be policed as opposed to worked with. So I refuse to use exam proctoring software or anything that I feel is, you know, surveillance type technology, though those do not come into my online classes. Um, and again, I think, you know, some of our students think very deeply about these things. Uh, some of them haven't, but in an online learning environment is a really opportune time to have the conversations about digital footprints and, you know, what people try to do to monetize that and how we can fight back against it. Um, one of the things that I, you know, a, a way that works out in concrete practice is, you know, with the blog, for example, that I do for my classes, you know, students need to do a WordPress account. Uh, and I, I talk with them about, you know, when you're, when you make an account, you know, you choose an avatar, a photo that, you know, think about, you know, how you're presenting yourself and what you choose to present and what you choose not to, because those are your choices and it's important that you make them. So even in something as simple as what is it going to look like on the blog site when I'm posting or commenting, you know, think about those things and, and realize that you do have choices. I'm not going to make you do a certain thing on a WordPress account that is your account and your digital presence. And I want it to be one that you cultivate, not me. So uh, that gets us to the, the issue of, you know, what inclusive teaching is and how, how we can monitor that. And, and also, you know, where, what are the risks that you are, want to take yourself that, that you see, you know, uh, here's the border of what I'm doing. And as a critically reflective teacher, you think, ah, if I could only, you know, take this leap into this other area. What would that be? That's a great question. Um, I think you know, one of the things I still struggle with personally is, you know, again, coming out of training in history, I still really struggle against this coverage model, right? The idea that if, you know, we must cover these things for students to learn them. And, and I keep having to remind myself, coverage is what I do. I cover things. That's not what students do. So if I'm busy covering things, then what are my students doing at that time? So I want to be able to let go of, a, and that's not to say that there are things that we'll never talk about or things that we won't do in the class. But there are things that don't need me as the mediator between them and the students. You know, that, that is still something that I, I, you know, am working on and continue, even if it's with my own head, like this sort of guilt feeling like, you know, if I don't really do a mini lecture on, you know, X, are they going to learn it, you know? And, and, and of course, it's silly when you sort of process it and think about it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's still the struggle for me. And so as much as I really, you know, value and privilege giving students agency in this collaborative element to courses, I still am trying to find ways to, to turn over more of the control into a sort of group setting, uh, more of a collaborative, more of a collective. And even if there are courses where I think I'm able to do that pretty well, I want to make sure I'm able to sustain it. Um, because otherwise, you know, too much of me as the intermediary, you know, I can't be the sole pathway between, in this case, you know, historical content and student learners. You know, I'm not a funnel. 
and so the less that I'm funneling things, the better off that we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the danger. I'm trying to think, I think um, the, this conversation about inclusion has, has made me think about the, like just the, the proliferation of that discourse in higher ed, in, um, in banking, that um, wonderful book um, that recently came out called Race for Profit by Kianga Yamada-Taylor talks mm. about what she calls predatory inclusion of banks that would target black and brown student or black and brown people for predatory housing loans. And I wonder if there's an analogy to be made with the ways that a sort of tokenizing diversity rhetoric, especially now with these um, Black Lives Matter statements from universities that are like actively um, marginalizing black faculty, brown faculty, other faculty of color. Um, the, the sort of inclusion becoming a currency. Um, I, what do you make of right now the tensions that we're seeing between the kind of rush to inclusion as a catchphrase versus conversations that are happening and demands that are happening for abolitionist teaching? How would you how would you reflect on the disjuncture there? Well, it is a disjuncture, um, and there, you know, there is a lot of, you know, you use the term currency, which I like a lot. You know, there's this commodification now of inclusive language, of the principles of inclusive teaching. Um, you know, I'm a historian of race and racism, so you know, for me, I often approach the issues of inclusion through race, but you know, we need to be mindful that that's just one facet of a larger inclusive approach. You know, inclusion is about equity. It's about every learner being welcomed affirmed and supported in a learning environment that helps them accomplish the goals of that particular experience um, in ways that, that are meaningful to them. Um, and that's a lot of work. And that's not just a statement. And that's not just a slogan. And you can't do that if you don't have a diverse faculty. You can't do that if you're not supporting, in many cases, your younger and part-time faculty colleagues who are doing a lot of this work, in particular in vital courses like your 100-level courses that are engaging with so much of your student population. And so what we, I think there's an, there's an opportunity here, but one that might, I hope doesn't evaporate too quickly. Um, one of the things that strikes me about the moment we're in right now is it does feel more real and more pivotal in some ways than, you know, maybe prior. And, you know, after 2008, there was a real opportunity to critique a lot of the ways that we think about finance and risk in this country. And of course, we didn't do any of those things. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that, you know, if institutions are going to be in a rush to adopt this inclusive language, okay, if you want to do this, how are we going to hold you accountable? You know, and, and I think there is an opportunity to say you can't just do the whitewash that that has been business as usual. All of your stakeholders need to be at the table for this, not just the marketing department. Um, framing it in terms of student success. You know, some of the things that get administrators attention are things like persistence and retention rates and graduation rates. And if this is, you know, a lot of this is a student success conversation, because if we say, you know, we promise students when they come to our institution that they will get the things they need to be successful, like attain a degree, you know, if that's how they define success. We are not carrying out that promise equally for all of our students. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are we going to do about that? Because now we're saying these things are important to us. 
So how are we going to do that in our campus community? What does it mean to support inclusive practice? What is it, you know, so you, you got to think about, you know, what's your hiring procedure? What are you doing to, you know, build candidate pools for both faculty and staff positions, for example? Does your faculty and staff look like your student body? The answer to that is almost always no. And that's certainly the case at my institution. So how are you going to fix that? What are you going to do? Um, how are you going to let students know that that's something that's important and that you're working on rather than just saying in a statement, right? What does your curriculum look like? What do teaching methods look like? Uh, is it this sort of, you know, Western Enlightenment rationality-based lecture coverage mode? Or is it something different? Uh, who's doing the work? Are you asking the two faculty of color in your department to do all of the diversity work? Who's doing that labor? How are you supporting people who are doing those, that labor? If you say it's important to engage students with different pedagogies and more active learning and culturally sustaining pedagogy, for example, what happens when there's pushback? You gonna support that faculty member? Especially if that faculty member is non-tenured, you know, all of these questions that come out, okay, so you have made this commitment, you have put out this statement on behalf of the institution, now you have to be able to follow up on it. And so we have to be ready wherever we are in terms of where we occupy institutional space. And for those of us like me who are white, who are male, who are tenured, who are full professors, it is absolutely incumbent on us with the access to the platforms we have to be asking these questions and holding our institutions accountable for answering them. And if we're not doing that work, for those of us who are in a secure position and not doing that work, we're failing. You know, we're failing our students, we're failing our colleagues. You know, so what that looks like, depending what, you know, what point you occupy institutionally in relation to power structures is important. But if you have a place where you can really be pounding the table for this and keeping these things on the radar screen and not letting this opportunity go to waste, then we ought to be taking it. Because, you know, every demographic forecast we look at for the future of the college student body, more students of color, more students who are coming from marginalized backgrounds, more students who are, you know, have suffered under, you know, 20 years of neoliberal austerity and education and are now coming to us. So we need to be rethinking the way that we're going about this enterprise, not just in this sort of pandemic panic fall semester, but going forward, because much of the current model is unsustainable. Yeah. Well, your own institution, uh, Grandview University, um, comes out of the Danish folk school tradition. Did it I does. Correctly? Okay, well, so does the Highlander Center mm -hmm. in Tennessee, right? Yes. Miles Horton. Um, and that, of course, there's a Freire connection there. Uh, as a, um, an institution of higher education, how does your university model those origins today? Not always completely and well, you know, I'll say, you know, there, are, but this, it is part of our ethos. It is, you know, we are the, the last Danish Lutheran school left in the United States, kind of a niche market, <laughs> but, but here we are. Uh, but it is important. One of the things I really like about my institution is that we do hold that history important to be important, but it doesn't handcuff us. You know, so it's not like we're going to say, well, how would the Danes have done it in 1904? I mean, but the model of folk school, you know, in, in the 19th century, it was about a more democratic access to education and a rethinking of what education really meant and who it was for. Uh, those are still questions that need to be rethought today. Uh, so I think one of the things I'm really proud of that my institution does is that 
we, you know, we're in Iowa, which is not known for example, it's racial diversity, uh, but we are much more diverse uh, racially, ethnically uh, than Iowa is and even Des Moines is in particular. So we are modeling that commitment. Um, and we are doing so, you know, rapidly and intentionally. When I started at Grandview in 2004, our student body was a little over 90% white. Now we're under 70% white. So that's been a remarkable pace. Um, have we been able to support that as skillfully and well as, as, as we might have all the time? No. Uh, but are we listening to our students and are we, are we doing meaningful things? Yeah, I do think the answer to that is yes. And, and we, we are an institution that very much values and intentionally creates access for students who have not historically been well served by education. Um, and, and in particular, higher education. For some of our students, you know, we are the only university that they got admitted to. For some, you know, over half our students are first generation students. Many of our students come from uh, difficult financial circumstances. So the liberal arts model, you know, the small liberal arts school model of education this is accessible to more than just those who can go to, you know, like the Seven Sisters or something like that, right? And that's a really important part of what we do. Uh, you know, we bring this type of institution to students who might not be able to access it otherwise. And so we have to think very carefully, again, about what does that access mean? And is that access meaningful? And that's what guides our conversations. It's, you know, I don't want to sound like the admissions view book because there are a lot of things that I would probably change at my institution. But one thing I would not change is we have a real and meaningful commitment to effective teaching and to what we would call student success. And uh, that commitment treats our students as more than just brains on sticks, you know, as actual people who are coming out of, say, structures of inequity uh, and coming into our classrooms and we acknowledge that and we build spaces that, you know, are for all of our students, not just the ones that look like us when we were an undergrad. And that's a really important part of all the work that we do. Um, and if it wasn't there, we, you know, A, we wouldn't be doing this work, but certainly would be, we wouldn't be doing it as well. Yeah, I think because of that, I have heard of the university um, as opposed to Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> Had not heard of your university. No, nope. yeah, he, he didn't seem to be up on his Danish uh, liberal arts schools, did he? No, that was a great takedown, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's made a, a pretty good living being awful on the internet. So, you know, at some point, somebody's got to push back, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, my mother works at one of these regional church-affiliated um, mostly first-gen serving schools and the kinds of transformative work there is is so critical and um, so thank you thank you for for signal boosting it to folks who might not have come across um, these these colleges and universities before um, I'm, I'm mindful of time so I'm, and I'm aware that we could talk about any, we could talk about so many things and we have, we've covered a lot, but what we haven't gotten to is what we promised to talk about, which is um, your most recent book um, about radical hope. This is, I mean, this is a softball question. I'm sure you're asked this all the time, um, but for the benefit of our listeners, I wonder if you could talk about what, what is your vision of radical hope beyond what you would say, like the slogan versions of it? Mm. And where do you see it right now um, in a concrete way? 
Yeah, it's, you know, this is interesting, uh, an interesting set of circumstances in which to be talking about an ethic of hope, right, when things appear so bleak. Um, and for me, you know, this, this idea of, te- you know, teaching is a radical act of hope. In other words, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't embody some sort of hope within our practice. And, and it's not always something that we've externalized or even articulated, but I think it's an important thing for us to be able to do. Um, one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about critical pedagogy and a lot of the writing is that it stays in the realm of theory and doesn't really get, you know, too concrete. And, and there are good reasons for that, but there is also a time where it's like, okay, you know, these are good Frarian principles and Henry Giroux has a lot of interesting things to say about, you know, critically approaching our frameworks. But what does that look like in five sections of Psych 101 with 40 students each, right? How do we put that into practice? And so writing this book was an effort to try to bridge theory and practice to say, you know, how do we embody, uh, you know, a critically hopeful ethic uh, into the everyday choices we make in our teaching practice. So, you know, what does my syllabus look like? You know, what are the, are my assessments equitable? What does an online learning space look like as we've been talking about, right? So putting principles into practice and then a continuous process of reflection on that practice, right? Getting at the term praxis, you know, the willingness to to critically reflect, to sustain and uplift what's working, to uh, revisit and change the things that are not, uh, and to involve our students in that. Um, you know, even when things are are as bleak and angry and, and ugly and violent as our current context is, there are ways out of it. You know, where we are now is the product of choices, and they're not always choices that we have made, and they're not choices that are necessarily freely made in, in any sort of circumstance, but they are choices. Someone made choices and here we are. So let's make different choices. You know, let's imagine different futures. It's one of the things that the neoliberal present has, has done so successfully and insidiously is to narrow our imagination. You know, like Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative, right? And so when we hear, you know, even today when we talk about, you know, police abolition and everyone's like, well, shouldn't you say defund? You don't want to scare off people and, you know, lawless anarchy if we, if we abolish the police. It's like, no, you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about imagining a different way of doing the things that right now police are asked to do. Uh, and there are absolutely things that we can do with that. Let, you know, so what, how could we tell the story or stories of a better future And to me, it seems that higher education is a space that is uniquely suited to being able to do exactly that work with the people who are going to be shaping that future. So to not avail ourselves of that opportunity and to become so immersed in the cynicism of today that we don't see the opportunity for different choices, or more tragically, that our students don't see themselves as the agents of making those different choices, then we're in trouble. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times when we say hope, you know, it becomes a sort of hallmark card slogan like, oh, I have hope because things will get better. But, you know, we have a responsibility in those things getting better. It doesn't happen by accident. Uh, and so I think that's the, you know, hope and practice and agency are fundamentally intertwined. And so approaching our work in higher ed with an ethic of radical hope means that for me, you know, my practice, my everyday practice is suffused with that ethic and every choice that I make with and among my students. And so how is that practice embodied and how are my students able to take advantage of the agency and the tools that they get in these, in my classes, in these learning experiences to make different choices.
Well, I'm telling all my colleagues uh, to read your book. Well, thank you. My editor will thank you for that, too. Uh, colleagues who uh, very few read anything in critical pedagogy um, are, are interested in, in good ways and in tools and methods and tricks in the classroom um, and in utilizing um, uh, the, the technology in best ways possible. Uh, but what, what else are you reading that uh, is inspiring you, pushing you further that you'd like to recommend? Um, I know from your um, course material for the uh, hybrid pedagogy um, class, uh, you've read, um, you're using uh, Wayne Yang and Eve Tuck, and we just interviewed mm -hmm. Wayne Yang um, two months ago. Uh, so this is a good segue. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, what do you want to recommend that you're reading right now? Well, right now, you know, I've, I've got a couple different paths of reading that I'm doing. Some of it is, you know, Star Trek novels, <laughs> because, I, you know, I need, I need to preserve some of my bandwidth. Um, some of it is some of the research on presence and community in online education, um, which, again, is not always the easiest or the most scintillating of reading, but the ideas and the findings there, I think, are super important to envisioning online spaces as spaces of community, as spaces of agency. So research on social presence and online learning in particular. And then, of course, as you allude to, you know, the, the decolonizing education track at, at Digital Pedagogy Lab this summer you know, I'm immersed in that, you know, thinking about ways that, that we can as a group collectively engage with this stuff and, you know, being mindful that I'm coming at it from a settler perspective and, and, you know, what, how can this inform our work in higher education and the ways that we intersect with it. So I've actually, right now I'm back reading, um, again, Franz Fanon, um, Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Masks. Uh, and I'm also in um, Red Pedagogy. Um, which is a really challenging book that I wish I had read earlier than this year. Um, but I'm back in it now and, and really being pushed to think in some ways that I think are really helpful um, in ways that I couldn't have gotten to by myself. So I'm deeply appreciative of the work that, that uh, Indigenous scholars and scholars of color have been doing um, because it's, it's so vital, you know, at any point, but especially now. Yeah, thanks. Lucia, wow. what are you reading? What am I reading? Um, I'm, I'm making my way through various dissertation-related materials. So I'm reading, a, I'm reading an ethnography of Doctors Without Borders right now, mm -hmm. which is um, pertinent to COVID-19 stuff and about how humanitarian care can become um, imperialist or is imperialist or has always been. Um, what am I reading on pedagogy right now? Um, I haven't read much on pedagogy super recently. Yesterday I read a great book um, a called, about called the, sure oh, Siri is talking to me. Um, <laughs> um, Counter Cola, it's a new history of the Coca-Cola Corporation and global movements mm -hmm. against it, which, um, is related to where Tina is right now and my alma mater, Agnes Scott, which gets a lot of Coca-Cola money, um, and also related to grassroots movement. So those, that's kind of where my mind has been in the last week or so. What about you, Tina? Uh, I just read uh, Sue Monk Kids, The Book of Longings. Uh, it's told um, by the narrator is the wife of Jesus, 
it's an interesting book. I do, uh, I'm writing a Jesus book, so um, uh, sort of Bible and film and pop culture, <laughs> cultural studies. Uh, so that that's interesting. And um, I'm rereading uh, Frere's Pedagogy of Hope, uh, in particular for this podcast because of a hope. <laughs> And I am reading things on uh, online teaching uh, that are depressing. Um, so uh, watching TV series. Uh, I have a TV series recommendation that is squarely on the topic of pedagogy, which is on Netflix. It's called Rita. Have y'all watched this? No. No, I'm not familiar with it. It's a, speaking of Danish institutions, um, it's a, it's a series about a teacher um, at a Danish, I think, all levels school. Um, who, it, it's a teacher who has problems with authority um, and problems with the principal and the guidance counselor. And she says that her... Um, her she gives her statement of why she's a teacher in her the second episode and she says i'm a teacher to protect children from their parents mm. and um anyway it's all about it's all about her it's all about her clashes with the administration among other things highly recommend it has been a therapeutic television series for me to dwell in during quarantine nice that's that's going in the queue mm -hmm. rita r-i-t-a well, Kevin, is, are there any last words you want to leave us with um, to challenge us or um, push us any further? Well, you know, we're all being pushed in so many different directions right now. I think, you know, my advice to colleagues and, and the advice I try to give myself too is, you know, as much as we can to maintain some sort of balance in our own needs versus the needs of the people that we're serving and working with. Um, you know, it is the cliche, right? You can't pour anything from an empty cup. Um, and I think we need to be careful. You know, we we come from such an ethic of caring for students and wanting them to succeed and, and to doing the labor that, that's necessary for that, but that can be taken advantage of by institutions. Uh, and so let's be mindful. And again, for those of us who are in positions uh, where we run centers or we have a seat at the administrative table, what are we asking our colleagues to do? Uh, and are we are we doing so in ways that are fair and equitable and supportive? And if not, we need to rethink that. So that was more than just a few words. I apologize, but but that's where my head's at. Well, thank you, Kevin Gannon, for being on Nothing Never Happens today. Uh, we appreciate uh, your book and um, have gained a lot from the work that you're doing. Well, thank you for having me, and thanks for being such a great voice for critical pedagogy. All right, thank you. Take care and um, be well. Thanks. Y'all do the same. Real pleasure talking with you today. Yeah. Good to talk to you, too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.
for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I want to thank my audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris, my producer, China Wilson. Theme and interstitial music is by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. And our outro music for this podcast is by Paul Myrie, Embrace Life. It's available on Bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening.